Well, church, let me pray for us, and I want to invite you to join with me as we pray together for for God's work in our midst, in the midst of what is for all of us a challenging time. It's probably challenging in different ways for different ones of us, but we're all going through a challenging time individually and as a whole church. And as we're going to see in God's word this morning, God has great purposes in that for all of us. And so I want to just join you and ask you to join me in coming before the throne of God right now and just praying that he would accomplish his purposes in his churches all over the Portland area, in our church, and in our own individual lives. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you knowing that you are all wise, that you are sovereign, that means you're in control of everything. And as we saw even last Sunday when we began looking at Hebrews chapter 12, that you have a race that you have ordained for us to run as you compare our lives with sort of a long-distance race. And you've laid out the course. And so there's nothing that is difficult. There's nothing that is hard that we are going through right now that has caught you by surprise or that is outside of your will for us as a church and for us as your people. So God, you are not limited, and yet we acknowledge as people we are very limited. And to some degree or another, we are all feeling, perhaps even more so as time goes on, the weight of the challenge of being separated due to our need to isolate from this virus and many, many other situations related to it. And some of us are going through challenging times that aren't even related to this situation, but here we are. God is a church, all acknowledging that at some level we are feeling the weight of burden and we don't understand what you understand. And so, God, we come before you right now acknowledging your greatness in your wisdom, in your knowledge of the past, present, and future, acknowledging your goodness, and acknowledging our limited ability to know and understand what's happening. And we ask you, Father God, first and foremost, that you would accomplish your purposes, that you would accomplish your purposes in churches all around the Portland area. I'm so grateful as I was on a Zoom call this week with 10 pastors from churches all over the Portland area, how we can uh, love one another, encourage one another along, uh, compare notes with one another, learn from one another. God, thank you for the fellowship of like-minded churches all over our city and our area. Thank you for each one of these churches and the partnership that we have with them here at Harvest Community Church. And we pray that you would accomplish your purposes, not only in their congregations, but also in ours. God, as so many of us as churches turn to thinking about how do we not only continue to be effective churches now, but what is it going to look like to come out of this time period and and get back to some semblance of normal? God, would you give us wisdom as we make plans and as we communicate with one another? Father God, that, that leads me to just pray for your work in our own congregation specifically, because we know from your word that you have plans and purposes, among other things, to refine us when things get hard, to change us, to to work things in us for our good and for your glory. And, And God, we don't know exactly what all of your plans and purposes are. You haven't told us what they all are, but you have told us that you have plans and purposes. And so God, this morning, I pray that you would refine us as a congregation. I don't even know all of what that means, but I trust that you have those purposes. We pray that you would accomplish them. God, make us a people who love you more and love this life less. Make us a people who are better uh, communicators and demonstrators of the gospel to those around us in our community here in Hillsboro so that more and more people might find eternal life in Christ as we faithfully love them, serve them, and proclaim the gospel of your good news and your love for this world. Father God, make us a church that is more focused on you, less focused on ourselves, more excited about the mission that you have for us, however you would work that out in our congregation. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and guidance as we think through what it is that you are um, refining in us as a congregation that we want to carry through long beyond this time of isolation. And lastly, God, I want to pray that same prayer for each one of us as individual members of this church. You are refining not only us as a whole group, but you are refining in individual ways each one of us as people. And so, God, I pray that that even now as we potentially feel the weights of, of discouragements or frustration or whatever it is we're feeling, Father God, help us to realize that you are using this difficult time to refine things in each one of us as individuals. 
God, help us to see what those things are. Help us to know how you're refining us and to cooperate with you to the best of our ability. God, show us what you would be refining in us. Show us how to be different people, better people, more God-loving and God-focused people as we come out of this period of isolation than we were going into it. God, we don't want to just go back and be the same people that we were. We want to be different. We want to be better. We want to be more filled with your spirit, more useful to you as people, better servants and lovers of the people around us and builders of your church and communicators of the gospel. God, work your purposes in us and give us the encouragement to continue the race, knowing that you are doing those things in us. I pray that you'd speak to us now, even as we look in your word. Give us strength to continue to run the race well as a church. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Many, many years ago, there was a television commercial uh, filmed by the late Kobe Bryant. Um, still really weird to say the late Kobe Bryant. Um, this particular uh, commercial showed him working out at the gym. And I loved the way it was, it was put together. I just thought as a matter of, of kind of filming it, and it was sort of a short film, even though it was advertising a product, it was just, it was very well done. Uh, there was all of these different scenes of him working out really hard in the gym, you know, pumping iron, his face is just scrunched and grimacing as he's putting himself through this grueling workout. Sweat is just pouring down his face and, and his clothes are just drenched as he is just going for it. He's giving every ounce of himself to this. And, and interspersed with all these shots was, was his own voice saying things like, you know, to all those who told me I wasn't good enough, told me I was you know, too soft, told me I couldn't do it. You know, there's all these negative things that he'd heard over the years interspersed with him just pushing harder and harder and harder and it's building up to kind of this climax. And then sort of the, the, the punchline of the commercial, so to speak, the climax, it all stops and is a little bit unexpected. And it cuts to the scene of a, uh, a very calm and relaxed Kobe Bryant. And he just looks up at the camera and he says, thanks. And then it ends. <laughs> I thought it was just a very well done. I'm sure my words aren't doing it any justice, but it was a well done and effectively made short little film that, that made the point that it was trying to make, right? I mean, it was, it was unpleasant for him, certainly to feel the pain of being in the gym and all the grueling uh, workouts and, and, and athletic training that a professional athlete will put themselves through. But it was also unpleasant to hear the criticism Right? All the negative things that he had heard over the years as a rising star athlete. But the point of the, the commercial was not so much that he just got mad about it and like sort of, ha ha, I proved you wrong, you're all bad, you never should have said those things. Actually, the commercial makes the opposite point. He actually says, thank you for that, thank you for that. In the larger view, all of the criticism and all of the pain drove him to be even better than he would have been had he taken it easy at the gym and relaxed a little bit and had everybody around him just told him how great he was and just told him everything he wanted to hear and told him pleasant things. Man, if I didn't have any opposition, he was basically saying, I would have only gotten this far. But because of the opposition and the negative, it drove me to get much further. And you know what? I'm happier where I am now with the opposition than where I would have been if everybody had just left me with pleasant things. The message was clear. The pain and the hardship were worth it. They were worth it. It was a good thing. I thought of that commercial when I was looking back at Hebrews chapter 12 again for part two of this sort of two-part mini-series, I guess you want to call it, that we've been doing this last Sunday and today in Hebrews chapter 12, which is all about how to have strength to run the race well. I mean, as we just mentioned in the prayer, we're, we're all grinding through uh, a tough time. Whether it's um, COVID-19 or something else, um, we're all dealing now with um, a long and hard race. And, and how, do, how do you thrive as a Christian when life gets hard? How do we run with endurance the race that is set before us, as the Bible puts it in Hebrews chapter 12? Well, in part one last week, we saw that, that strength to run the race comes from knowing that God is the one who has laid out the course and 
uh, it comes from taking inspiration from others, especially Jesus himself, who have run their courses well before us. Those two things can give us strength to run our course well. But there's more. There's more. In today's passage, it's, uh, the Bible is going to give us two reasons why God would lay out a difficult course for his people to run at all. After all, it's one thing to say, as we saw last week, hey, we, we can be encouraged by knowing that if, if my path is hard, you know, God is the one who laid it out for me, so I can trust him in that. But, but why would God lay out a hard and a long course for his people to run that has to be endured through? Why, if God loves us, would he not just make our path easy? Why do we have to go through this? Well, the rest of the passage we're going to look at in today's message gives us two things, two um, uh, principles we can lean on that will help us continue to have strength to run the race. First of all, we can see that strength to run the race well comes from knowing that hard times are part of how God trains us and refines us. And secondly, and maybe most shockingly of all, hard times are signs of God's love for us. That's what we're going to see as we look at our text. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 5, where we left off last week, and read down through verse 13. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but may rather be healed. Father, I pray that you would now open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Teach us and speak to us, God, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, this passage today starts out really going right after this idea of why God would bring difficult and challenging things into the lives of his people. Uh, the passage starts by quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. That's what you see there in verses 5 and 6. Uh, you'll notice in most of your Bibles, most of those verses are sort of indented a little bit differently. And that's to show that, that the New Testament there is quoting directly from the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. And, and what he quotes, he calls it a word of exhortation which could also be understood as a word of encouragement, actually, or even a word of assurance. That's what he's saying. What I'm about to quote from Proverbs, in other words, is supposed to give you assurance. It's supposed to encourage you, Christian, when you're running a long, hard race. This is supposed to help lift you up and help keep you going. This is some good news. And then he immediately quotes a passage that talks about how the Lord disciplines those he loves. This passage is, is, is encouraging us, it's challenging us to maybe reframe the way that we see hardship in our lives. Notice how the book of Hebrews is using the idea of God's discipline not to refer so much to um, being like punished for wrongdoing, but rather to refer to all of the hard and difficult things that God ordains to come into the lives of his people. I mean, after all, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were facing tough times from a hostile world. 
they were actually suffering ridicule for being Christians. Uh, they, some of them were suffering financially. In some extreme cases, some of them were even being incarcerated and thrown into prison because uh, they were understood to be rabble-rousers, and they were, so they were actually suffering the, the, the loss of their property and even sometimes the loss of their freedom. They were being unjustly accused. They were being mistreated in a lot of ways. There were economic hardships. There were social hardships. There was all kinds of difficulty, and after doing this for a while, some of them were tempted to just throw in the towel. This is hard, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better. So the book of Hebrews was written to encourage them to keep going faithfully to the end. Now, as we saw last Sunday, the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, encouraged readers to follow the example of other Christians, culminating ultimately in Jesus himself. People who ran their difficult and God-ordained races well. We're to take our inspiration from seeing how faithfully they ran their races so that we will then too run our race well. But in the midst of that now, the author immediately then turns and cites Proverbs 3 as an encouragement for us to run our race well, and he calls that the discipline of the Lord. When we see the word discipline, we, we can often immediately think about punishment, right? Think of those two words as being synonyms. Discipline is punishment. Um, God may be inflicting negative circumstances on us because we've blown it, and so we're getting punished. And in the Bible, God's discipline can mean that. It can mean punishment, but it also has a broader idea, and, and, in, and the book of Hebrews is using it in this much broader sense. It also refers to the idea of, of training, that discipline is training, that going, the idea of going through hard things in order to get better, tougher, stronger, to achieve some kind of a greater purpose. That also is discipline. Maybe a helpful word picture would be um, like a military's boot camp. You take a bunch of recruits and they're put through this long and grueling process of several weeks where they are subjected to um, incredible strains and stresses on purpose and brought to the point of physical and mental exhaustion. They're put through all kinds of pain and suffering. Not because it's, it's not punishment, right? Not because they did anything wrong. As if only the bad recruits who have broken the rules have to go through boot camp. But as long as you keep the rules, you can sleep in however you want, you know, and eat at the mess hall whenever you want to and have whatever, you know, have a life of ease. Of course, that's not how it works. No, all the recruits are put through this grueling process, not because they've done something wrong, but the pain is inflicted on them to prepare them for the mental and physical challenges of being successful soldiers. And so in that sense, the boot camp regimen is an intense discipline that they are put through in order to make them better soldiers. That's kind of the idea that we're finding here in the book of Hebrews. Here's good news. Be encouraged, Christian, the Bible is telling us. Be reassured that God has a purpose in life's hardships. Which leads to an important question. Like, where is God when life gets really hard? When, when pain, when grief, when loss, when stress, anxiety, unfairness, when all sorts of negative and, and evil catastrophic things happen in our, in our lives, where is God? In James chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible famously tells us to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials the exact opposite response that we normally have, the opposite of the human response. When things get hard, I get discouraged, I get frustrated, and yet the Bible is saying to the Christian, count it all joy when things get hard. Do you, how do you normally respond when things get hard? Be honest with yourself. As people, we can be tempted to respond in all kinds of different ways depending on who we are. Uh, for some of us, hard things in our life or the lives of other people can lead us to question God's very existence. Um, if you're not somebody who actually believes in God, you don't consider yourself a religious person at all, and maybe you're like, oh, I'm not sure if God is there or not, but boy, when I see how much evil and difficulty there is in somebody else's life and I see all this kind of suffering, man, that, 
that makes, that's part of what makes it hard for me to believe in God. That's a very common response that a lot of people have. And you know what? Honestly, even for Christians, people who are convinced that God is there, if we're honest, sometimes we can go through the exact same thought process. Something hard comes into our life or the life of people that we know and love, and maybe it, it, it makes us have doubts deep down inside, whether we give voice to them or not. Is God really there? Maybe hard things lead us to question God's existence. Or perhaps hard things don't necessarily um, lead you to question God's existence. Maybe for you, hard things tend to make you more question God's love. For a lot of people, it's like, I, I, the, the existence of, of hard things in people's lives or in my life, don't make me doubt whether he's there, but man, I sure am not convinced that, that he loves me because look what he's allowing to happen to me or to them. How, how could that possibly be love? Or, you know, I've been pastoring long enough to know that for some people, the existence of hard things doesn't lead them first and foremost to question God's existence or his love, but actually leads them to question themselves. Like the first place we go when things get hard is we go internal, we go to shame, we assume God is there, we believe that God is loving, so if this is happening, I must be the problem. <laughs> Maybe God loves other people, but he can't possibly love me because I'm not worthy of his love, or you know, because of all the bad and horrible things that I've done. God is punishing me, this is awful, so God may be loving to other people, but he doesn't love me. This is not an indication of what's wrong with God, it's an indication of what's wrong with me. And so many different places that we could go when hard things come into our lives. Let me ask a couple of questions with regard to what this passage is telling us. These are worth thinking about, maybe even discussing in our community life groups this week. First question, is it possible, just, just possible, that God has some good and wise purpose in the hard things that he ordains for us to go through, even if we don't know what that purpose is right now? Is it possible he has a purpose that we don't understand and might not even necessarily fully agree with when we're in the middle of the pain, but that it's good and it's right? Is it possible that God has some purpose in this that we don't understand? Another question. Is it possible that God's love and desire to give us only the very best gifts might sometimes entail hardship and difficulty? D does God's love require that he always give us pleasant experiences? Or is it, is it possible that there could be a situation where God's love would actually dictate we go through something hard now for a greater good later, and that that's actually the most loving thing to do. Are either of those even possible? Well, those are the questions the rest of this passage pursues, and the, the first point here causes us, I think, to ask, in, in what sense is it reassuring or good news that God is bringing hardship into my life as a Christian? How does that, how does that encourage me? After all, that's, that's what it's supposed to do. If you look down at the last two verses of our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, uh, in light of everything I've said, I'm skipping to the end here, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but may be healed. You see, the author of Hebrews expects that all of this talk about God's discipline will encourage us. And when our knees feel weak because we're under such a load of difficulty, that this news will strengthen us to keep going. So it causes us to ask these questions. Does God potentially have a purpose? And is this a, a, an expression of his love for us? The first point is to, to reframe how we understand hardship. And these next two points that we're going to look at help us do that. How do we reframe hardship and how we see it and understand it? Well, if we back up to the beginning of our passage in verse 5, we see the first of two points. We can reframe hardship by understanding that that difficulty, trials, is kind of the most common New Testament word for it. When God ordains hard things in our lives... He is doing it for the purpose of training us, for, for changing us from within as people. 
you see that in verse 7, right after he finishes quoting from Proverbs chapter 3 and, and this talk about God disciplining us as, as, as sons and daughters, as children. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And so there, once again, you can sort of see, even in the way the word discipline is being used by the author, that he's using it in that sense of training and development. Why should I have to endure a hard time? Well, it's for discipline. It's for what it's going to do in you. And he makes that even more clear down in verse 11, if you drop down there. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, of course, but it later yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, look at the wording, for those who have been trained by it. And so we see this language kind of salted all throughout the passage. God is using difficult times to, to train us. Um, the New Testament book of Romans elaborates on that. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, which says, We rejoice in our sufferings. There's that same idea we heard earlier from the book of James. When we're suffering as Christians, the Bible says we're supposed to rejoice. Exact opposite of the reaction we would normally have. But when we suffer, we rejoice. How can you rejoice? How can you reframe the suffering, so that as a Christian, I see it differently and I'm actually happy about it. Well, Romans 5 lays out a very clear pattern. It's sort of like God's training regimen, if you will. It goes on to say, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. You see there a general four-step process that starts to unpack some of what God is trying to do in the lives of people. Enduring a hard time leads us, uh, going through a hard time rather, leads us to endurance, the Bible says. And in other words, hard times sort of keep us going. When it's easy, you don't have to worry about keeping on going. It's easy. When it's hard, you have to think about, am I going to get up out of bed? Am I going to take the next step? Am I going to keep going? And in the process, they help us, these hard times help us fall more out of love with this world because we're seeing how empty the world is and how hard it can be so that we're primed and ready to fall more deeply in love with God and the next world. Suffering produces endurance, but then endurance produces character. You endure enough, and it kind of changes the, the, the kind of person you are. Like, it, it makes us an enduring kind of people. A people who are long-term thinkers, not so much short-term thinkers. People who more naturally are forward-looking people, and not here and now people. And therefore, we become the kind of people who are less likely to trade Jesus' glory for lesser worldly comforts and security here and now, because our character is being changed. That refining process happens under the pressure of difficulty. And when that endurance produces that character, the character then produces hope. Hope. In the Bible, that word means the anticipatory yearning for our true home in heaven. If you're a Christian, have you ever found yourself saying like, man, I know heaven's going to be great someday, but I don't really know what that's going to look like or whatever. I guess it'll be great when I get there. But like deep down, it's like in your head, you know it's true and you believe it, but it hasn't affected your anticipation or your feelings yet. How, how do we let the hope of heaven penetrate to our longings? The Bible says this is one way God does it. Through suffering, he produces endurance, and endurance produces a character of being a forward-looking people, and that finally opens us up to say, oh, I can't wait. Experientially, I'm longing to be with Jesus for all eternity. I feel that much more in times of suffering than I do in times of plenty and ease. And the final, it closes with the promise that hope won't let us down. It's literally what it's getting at. That hope won't let us down. In other words, when we get to the finish line, it will all have been worth it. You see, that's God's training regimen from Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Suffering leads to endurance, endurance to character, character to hope, and hope to ultimate everlasting joy. See, if I understand that, if I actually come to view my life this way, it puts a totally different spin on the hard times that God ordains that I will walk through. It doesn't necessarily make those hard times any easier. It doesn't make them any less painful or any less difficult. 
But it does reframe what it means to go through them. There's a purpose in it. And just before we get back to Hebrews and move on, we need to say one very important thing about this whole topic of, of God ordaining difficult things and people going through pain and suffering. And that is that when, when passages like Romans 5 and Hebrews 12 and James 1 and so many other New Testament passages say that God has a, a refining purpose in mind when we go through hard times, it's worth pointing out that this is one thing that God says he uses hard things for. It is not always what he uses hard things for. The Bible's not saying that. Nor is it saying it's the only thing that he uses hard things for. We shouldn't reduce all of God's purposes to just this one thing. The Bible never says this is the sum total of what's going on when God ordains difficulty. This is just part of what he's doing. You know, sometimes as Christians, we're tempted to say things like, uh, you know, man, this situation I'm in is so hard right now. I, God's probably trying to teach me patience, right? God's trying to teach me patience. Well, from the perspective of the Bible, I think the best response to that would be, maybe. Maybe he is. He might be. But you know what? He also might be trying to teach you something else that has nothing to do with patience. Maybe you don't even know the lesson he's trying to teach you yet because he's trying to bring up an issue that needs to be worked on, and I'm unaware of it. Or you know what? Maybe, maybe God has some other purpose in why I'm going through a hard time that doesn't even have anything to do with me. Maybe it has to do with other people. Maybe it has to do with his glory. <laughs> Consider the man born blind that Jesus encountered in John chapter 9. This is a big deal. I mean, obviously, the, the physical disability of being born without your sight is already a pretty hard road to have to walk. But in that particular case, in that culture, in that time, this had significant implications for the rest of his life as well. Uh, it meant he had, you know, no employability, really. He couldn't go out and be a farmer. He couldn't learn to be a scribe. I mean, he couldn't do the work that people would do, and so he was resorted to just relying on others and handouts. It also impacted his social standing. He was sort of an outcast who, who would want to go, you know, marry him and do all this kind of stuff. It was a big deal. And so here come the disciples with Jesus, and they see this guy begging who was born blind, and their first question to Jesus was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, that's how they understood God's discipline. God would only have done this to punish somebody. And what was Jesus' answer? This is not about punishment. This guy was born blind so that I might get glory through him. And he miraculously heals the guy and gives him his sight back. But the story doesn't go on there. Uh, it doesn't end there. It, it, it goes on. He comes back and he's hauled before the religious council that had the power over his social acceptance or not. And, and they're accusing Jesus of falsity and they're trying to get him to accuse Jesus. And he says, I don't know who that guy is. All I know is he worked a miracle and I can now see. And it comes to the point where they finally threaten him. If you don't renounce him, we're going to throw you out of the synagogue, which is amazing. You finally got your sight back, so you now have hope and prospects for a good social and economic future, and we have the ability to take that away from you by continuing to make you an outcast. And the big climax comes when he says, absolutely not, and they throw him out. And the story ends with him finding Jesus again, and he says, Jesus, who is the Messiah? Jesus says, it's me, and he's falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping. What's the point of all of that? What's the point of all of that? The point is that he found something so much better than he lost when he found Christ. His hardship led him to life that, that he said, you know what, I'm better off with where I am now with all the pain I've had than I would have been if I never had the pain and life was easy. But there's much more to it than that. It isn't just his story that changed. His story occupies an entire chapter of the Bible so that millions and millions of people for centuries afterwards could see what God did in his life and we could likely have our own eyes opened and experience eternal life as well. God gets great glory and millions of people find eternal life because this man had walked a hard road. You see, so much of his suffering had nothing to do with him, even though it dramatically and positively impacted him in the end. It was about so much more than him. It's about the glory of God. What's the point? The point is simply this. We should be cautious in assuming that God only has one reason for something that he does, or that that reason is always and only about us. 
there is a mystery to pain and suffering that, that defies easy answers. And by providing some clarity on God's purposes in hard times, the Bible's not trying to take away that mystery. Yet having said that, while there is a mystery where, where, where the reason God allows pain and suffering is not always fully explained, at the same time, God does not leave us totally without explanation. When we're in the middle of hard times, sometimes it can all seem so purposeless, so senseless. And God is trying to tell us, no, I'm always in control and I always have purposes. I'm even going to show you in general what some of my purposes are. That won't always explain every detail of why somebody goes through a hard time. But God gives us enough to know that he does have a plan and he does have purposes. Friends, what's really hard in your life right now? Like, if I could just fire up my espresso machine and sit down with you at this table and give you the cappuccino and take mine and drink together over some coffee, I'd just say, what's, what's, what's hard for you right now? What's most difficult? Is it possible that, that God is removing something from you in order to shake you free from lesser things so that you can fall more deeply in love with Jesus, the greater thing? Maybe you've spent all your life saying, I don't even believe this religious stuff. I don't even consider myself a Christian. And yet you're going through difficult times. Is it possible that this is one of the ways God is trying to help you fall out of love with the promises of this world so that he can lead you to himself, so that you can experience love and joy and peace with him for all eternity? God uses hard things to refine us, and that may be part of what he's doing in whatever our difficult situation is right now. Knowing that he has a plan and a purpose can give us strength to run the race, but there's one more thing that this passage tells us. Strength to run the race comes from knowing that God has uh, purposes for our training in difficulty, but it also shows us that trials and difficulty are signs of his love. They're actually signs of his love. God wouldn't even bother training us if he didn't love us. That's the idea. We see this in verses 7 and 8. What, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I mean, if you're left without discipline, in which all of us have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons. The, the point's pretty clear. The, the analogy to parenting. A core aspect of parenting is, is discipline. The most loving parents express their love in part by disciplining their children. Um, that certainly does mean punishing them when they do wrong, but, but it also is the more broad sense of, of, of loving parents who intentionally put rules on their children and, and, and expectations of their children and, and demands on their children's behavior that you know sometimes create unpleasant and stretching experiences for the kids. And the purpose is obvious, so that the kids will stretch and will grow and will mature and become the men and women that they can and should be. I mean, if parents ignored their kids and just let them do whatever they wanted, that wouldn't be a sign of love. That would actually be a deep indifference. It would express that we don't care about you enough to even care what you're doing. Well, if that's true of parents, how much more true is it of God? Verse 9 says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits, meaning, meaning our spirits, our spiritual father, shall we not be much more be subject to him and live, find real life? After all, they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. We, we experience this good, loving discipline with human parents, but man, it's in a limited and certainly imperfect way. Some of us had very unloving and very dysfunctional parents who didn't know how to discipline well at all. But you know, even those of us who may have experienced good discipline from our parents, our parents were always finite. Uh, they did the best they could, but they made mistakes. And we as parents with our own kids continue to make mistakes. But you see, God is not limited the way that human parents are. He's not uncertain about the future. His judgment is never off. 
His emotions are always present, but he never becomes a slave to them. He never just disciplines out of anger. He's always disciplining out of love for our good. Everything God ordains is an expression of his character, wisdom, and insight, righteousness, and yes, love. Now, it certainly doesn't feel that way. Verse 11 says, the moment, no discipline, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Of course, it doesn't feel that way at the time. But it is his love. And that becomes clear when we take the larger view. It's really tempting, is it not, to define love, either from people or from God, based on like immediate circumstances and feelings. Even if we know that's not true, it's real easy to go there. Uh, some time ago, I had a conversation with a Christian friend who, who said, um, you know, if my, my child is thirsty and I have water, I'm going to give them the water, right? That's the loving thing to do. So kind of like I know God is loving no matter what, but it's sort of hard to, to understand how like God could give us everything we need. So why would he ordain pain and hardship? Why would he hold that stuff back and make life difficult? Can you relate to that line of thinking, to that question? Man, I, th- I can. I think we all can. <laughs> Speaking of children and discipline, I, I had to face this once when I was a, a teenager. There was a situation I will never forget. I don't even remember the circumstances that led up to it, but I just remember I was probably 15 or 16. I was a teenager, I was in high school, and I was mad at my father. Um, he had disagreed with me about something. There was some decision I was in total disagreement with. I had to have some kind of whatever consequence or I can't remember what the situation was. But I wasn't getting my way was the point. And I was livid. I remember storming off to my room, slamming my door, and literally pacing back and forth and just talking out loud about how wrong my dad was. I mean, this was like total massive teenage-like outburst, right? How wrong my dad was, how... He thought he was right, but he didn't understand, and I'm the one who has it right, and he's wrong, and I'm just like railing and seething in my, my rage in my bedroom. And my dad had come down the hall to talk more with me, and so he stopped outside my door, and he heard me huffing and chuffing in my room and, and going on and on about how right I was and how wrong he was. And here's how he chose to handle it. He just, without knocking, he just opened the door. He threw the door open, immediately stopped, and there he is standing in the door, and there I am. I stopped talking, you know, in my huff. And in that calm, cool voice that parents sometimes use and kids always hate, <laughs> he basically said to me, I know you think you're right, but you're not. And in so many words, you, you need to deal with that. This is the way it is. And he turned around and he left. And there was that moment. There it is. What is my heart going to do with that? Because, you know, deep down inside, I knew he was right. I knew there was probably a point of view he had. I just didn't want to admit that that had value to it. I just didn't want to admit it at the time because I was so mad. I was so full of my own pride and my rage. Now, here's the point. Like, if I can look back on that and admit that my dad was right, that my dad had a view of things that was maybe better and wider than my view. And my dad is limited, he's a sinner, he's a human being. Then, if I can acknowledge that my, my limited human dad can make my life unpleasant as an expression of his love, can I not then acknowledge the same thing about God? Who is not limited, who always knows the best and has my good in mind, no matter how painful my life is right now, even if I can't see how it's good, can I trust his love. After all, friends, whatever God chooses to ordain in terms of the hard road for me and for you, one thing, whatever that means, one thing it cannot mean is that God doesn't love us. It cannot mean that. That's just not an option. The reason it's not an option is because God immutably and forever demonstrated his love for us by hanging on the cross in our place. You see, God became a man, Jesus, and he died a sinner's death, paying the price for our sin, not his. He didn't have any sin. 
but paying the price for our sin. You see, we don't, the Bible tells us we don't get right with God by going to church or by being good people or even being spiritual people or by leaning into our spirituality. No, actually, the gospel, the good news of the Bible, of Christianity, is that we get right with God by admitting there is nothing we can do to get right with God. It starts by admitting that and then turning to Jesus and leaning completely, not on what we do or who we can be, but leaning completely on what he did and who he is by dying in our place and paying for our sins for us. When we turn away from living apart from him, that's repentance, and we turn toward Christ, that's when we can have the hope of eternal life. That's what it means to become a Christian. And here's what the Bible says about that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God did this for us because of his love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So friends, our experiences and our emotions may rail against God for what he has ordained in our lives or in other people's lives. We often don't understand it. It often is very difficult, is bitter, it is difficult to swallow. But whatever it means, one thing it cannot change is the fact that he hung and died on the cross. That remains the immovable proof that whatever this means, it cannot mean God does not love us. Because God ordained for his own son the most difficult road of all, and he walked it because of his love for you and me. And so just like the huge waves on the Oregon coast crashing over rocks, our emotions can rage against God and say, God, I don't understand. I don't think I can handle this. I don't even know if I can trust you because you've ordained this to happen to me or to them. And I don't even know if I can trust you to love me anymore. And our emotions can even just overwhelm the idea that God loves us. But as soon as it's all spent, as soon as it's all blown itself out, the tide recedes back and there's the rock of God's love. Jesus hanging on the cross hasn't changed. It can't change. It will always be there. So is it possible? Is it possible that God loves you and I enough to make our lives miserable sometimes? Is, is that possible that that could happen? Can we trust that God loves us and has reasons for our hardships, even if we don't fully understand them and, and likely wouldn't find them satisfying in the moment, even if we did understand them? Because it's hard, it's difficult. But we know that he, can we trust him, that he loves us? In the marathon race of following God in this life, can we see beyond the current hill God has us running up, to beyond that hill to the glorious finish line that will make it all worth it in retrospect? I want to close with a true story of a friend of mine that's happening in real time right now. His name is Jay. Jay and I attended church together many years ago before I came to Harvest. Uh, he lives over on the east side of town, and for many, many years, uh, Jay's um, younger than me. He's married, has two beautiful girls, uh, and he's been battling uh, really aggressive cancer for years. Just this past week, he got the news that everybody knew was coming at some point um, but when he was sharing it in a, in a live video on Facebook and I was watching that it just it was like a, a mule just kicked me in the chest and knocked me back it was just like a ton of bricks and so he was given the diagnosis that there's nothing more we can do days to weeks and, and he'd process this with his family, and then for a few minutes, there's so many people that follow and encourage him, so he just got on social media for a few minutes and said, guys, this is the update. And you could just tell, I mean, the weight of it was all over his face. And he gave the update, and then he said this. I, I rewound the video, watched it a couple times, and wrote it down so that I could get his exact words. He said, guys, this isn't about me. It's about the glory of Jesus. That's what this is about. He said, are there elements of this that are the most horrendous, horrible, unthinkable things? Yeah. It was heavy. But are there elements of this that are filled with so much hope and light and truth and love? And does that outweigh 
Does the hope of eternal glory outweigh this? He said, yeah, it does. It really does. Romans 8.18 says that the light and momentary affliction we're going through isn't even worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed to us. That's what Jay was saying. That's what he's experiencing in the midst of the weight and the pain and the agony that he's going through, that his wife and beautiful girls will be going through. Friends, God doesn't give us everything we might want to know. But he gives us everything we need to know in order to sustain us in the race. For these past two Sundays in Hebrews 12, we've seen that strength to run the race comes from knowing that God is the one who ordained the race, from being inspired by others who are running their hard races well, from knowing that God has purposes to refine us in those hard times, and ultimately from knowing that no matter what, God's love is the unmoving, solid rock that we can hold on to, and that is demonstrated in the greatest race runner of all time, Jesus himself who suffered, died, and rose again so that you and I could have the hope of a glory that will outweigh it all. So church, wherever you are today, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let these truths penetrate to the core of your being so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. God, we don't know why you do what you do in every detail, but we know who you are, and we know that your purpose is to bring us home to eternal glory, and we know that at all times you are good and you love us. God, would you help us most in the times where that conviction, that belief seems to collide with our experience? God, I pray especially for everybody who may be tuning into this who is broken under the weight of huge loss, deep grief, or just long, hard difficulty. And maybe we're, we're having a hard time fixing our eyes on you. We're having a hard time believing you're there. God, would you reveal your love to every one of us, starting with me. God, penetrate deeply into our hearts that we would find ourselves encouraged to take the next step because we know you're in it. We know you have purposes. We know you are leading us to the greater, greatest good possible. And that is to cross our finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God, I pray that for everybody who's watching this who may not have a saving relationship with you, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to them, their need for you to them in a way that they will understand the truth of how much you love them. Move hearts to respond to you in repentance and faith. Strengthen drooping hands. Strengthen weak knees. And give us as a people the courage to move on, to trust you, and to shine the light of your goodness and love in and through us. Accomplish your purposes in this church and in every one of us who's a member of it, we pray for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.